0: Welcome, Uh, this is our morning equipping hour, and uh, we are going to be continuing our study and overview of of the Old Testament, and more specifically, today we'll be continuing our study of the Minor Prophets, which we began last week, Uh, and Tim gave a bit of an overview of the Minor Prophets in general, so you can always refer back to that video. Uh, And as always, there are handouts available in the back. If you haven't received one, you can certainly raise your hand, and Seth will bring you one. Unless they're empty. Maybe there's some more being printed. Um, But with that, let me just open our time with prayer. Dear Father, we are indeed grateful to you for um, gathering us together this morning, Lord. You have called a people together under your name and have assembled us together here at River City Grace. And you are the great shepherd, Lord, who feeds his sheep uh, through the proclamation and teaching of your word. And so even this morning as um, we gather around your word, as I present your word uh, to your saints, uh, Lord, that you would prepare their hearts, open their hearts to receive your word, your truth, uh, with with readiness, uh, soft hearts, and an eagerness to obey, Lord. Uh, Help me as I teach to be consistent with who you are, uh, to present your word accurately, that your saints might be equipped to do the works that you've prepared beforehand for them to perform. Lord. Thank you for this time. Bless this morning. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, we're continuing our study through the Old Testament. And at this point, we are going to be looking at the books of Obadiah, Jonah, and Micah. So if you'd like to prepare by just turning to Obadiah, it's right next to Jonah, which may be an easier book to find because Obadiah is only one chapter long. Um, so as you do that, uh, just generally ask you as well, um, how have you found these overview studies uh, to be an encouragement in your own life? Um, has it motivated you maybe to pursue the Old Testament a little bit more? Any, any testimonies uh, that you want to give or encouragements of your experience through these series? Yeah, Garrett?
1: Yeah, I pretty exclusively lived in the New Testament for most of my adult Believe in life, and that's obviously a bountiful blessing of riches there. But great. this overview has really brought out how much I had missed focus on the Old
0: Testament. I've kind of completely reverted course as a result. Oh, great! It's, yeah, that's a good. great encouragement. Yeah, that's fantastic. Good. Anyone else? Well, I've I've personally shared that same uh, sentiment. I've I've you know I've been a man of the New Testament for many many years, and have kind of uh, stayed away from the Old Testament. I've, I mean, I've read through it, but in regards to taking a more focused study of it, it's uh, it's been a challenge because I get lost. And so these overviews that have been presented by other teachers, as well as the time I've had to spend in preparing for these, have really encouraged me and, and have given me a, a greater appreciation for the work that the Lord is doing uh, through the entirety of his word. And we know that all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching and reproved for correction and training and righteousness, right? So that we would be adequately equipped. So so anyway, I hope you find uh, that to be the case. And I hope that this study of the uh, minor prophets will indeed encourage you to pursue them yourselves. So, so as we do, we're, we're going to be looking at the book of Obadiah. And the way we're going to approach this um, is to just make some general observations about each of these books. Uh, We'll we'll provide some context, and then we'll look at at each book in a little bit more detail. So let's make some general observations about the book of Obadiah. Now, if you look at uh, verse 1, there is no chapter reference, so it's just verses. Verse 1, it says the vision of Obadiah. So who is Obadiah? Well, we don't really know much about him. There isn't much said. The name Obadiah shows up in the Old Testament numerous times, but it's not necessarily in reference to this Obadiah. But it is a book named after the prophet who received the vision. Uh, But again, we don't know much about him. His name can be translated to mean servant of the Lord or the one who serves Yahweh. Obadiah is the shortest book in the Old Testament. Again, it's only 21 verses long. But again, length does not mean it's less important. Obadiah is the only Old Testament book not mentioned in the New Testament. Now, I don't know the relevance of that. It's just all the commentaries I've read seem to mention it. So I thought I'd share it with you and you can make some inference from that if you'd like. But in verse 1 we read, Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom we read that this message is concerning Edom. Although there is some debate on the date of the writing of this book, many believe it takes place after the fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. And as it is about Edom, and we'll get into who Edom is, and, um, it's about the Edomites, and they lived, the Edomites lived southeast of the Dead Sea in the mountainous regions, They lived in the the mountaintops um, and near the the King's Highway. Uh, The King's Highway, which still exists today, is a major trade route between Africa and Europe and Asia. And that was a very uh, well-used travel, um, path of travel for trade. And that the Edomites lived along the King's Highway, and that would come relevant at one point as well. So just a general outline of the book of Obadiah, Uh, we'll see in verses 1 through 14 God's judgments on Edom. And within that, we'll see in verses 1 through 9 Edom's judgments. And then reasons for Edom's judgments in verses 10 through 14. And then we'll see God's judgment on other nations in verses 15 through 16. And then finally, verses 17 through 21, God's restoration of Israel. Now, When I taught Ezekiel, one of the things uh, a few weeks back, one of the things I aimed to do was to provide some context. Good Bible study always requires that we have an understanding of the context of what we're reading. Not only the immediate context of the verses that we're looking at, but also the greater historical and theological context within which this book resides. And so, once again, we want to do that. We want to provide some context to what's going on. And the first thing we want to do is we want to go back, and we did this with Ezekiel, we want to go back to Genesis 12. So if somebody would be willing to read Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, and we're going to look again at the Abrahamic Covenant, because it plays a role and is relevant to our study here today. The Abrahamic Covenant, if you'll recall, um, was given um, to Abram, who, which is Abraham's name prior to being renamed Abraham, Abram, So. Would somebody be willing to read chapter 12 verses 1 through 3? Terry.
1: Chapter 12 verse 1 through 3. Correct. Now the Lord said to Abram, "Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show to you. I will make you of a great I'll make of you a great nation and I'll bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing" I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Thank you.
0: So if you'll recall back in uh, when we looked at Ezekiel, and I'm sure others have addressed this uh, covenant as well, here we see God promising to Abram to make a, from him a nation that will be great and that will serve as a blessing uh, to all other nations. God was going to raise up among from the loins of Abraham um, a people. And in through him all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so God makes this covenant um, as a blessing uh, using the people of Israel as a blessing for all nations. But we also see in here, in verse 3, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. He also promises to protect the people that he will make great from Abraham. He promises to protect them by cursing those who dishonor him. Hey, John, I'm getting a little bit of feedback. Yeah. Thank you. Um. So, God, and it's this latter part of this covenant that we're going, which will serve that will become relevant to our study of Obadiah because God is bringing judgment to Edom and other nations for dishonoring God's people, and more importantly, God himself. For it's God who chose the people of Israel. So we see God bringing judgment to the Edomites for warring against God's people. Nation against nation. And again, in Obadiah, he says this, you know, this is a vision, this is concerning Edom. In in, uh, Obadiah, um, chapter, uh, Obadiah 10, verse 10, that is. We read this. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. Here we see Obadiah announcing that because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, this rivalry did not start with these nations warring against each other. It started as a rivalry among brothers. So let's take a look at the backstory because we need to understand who the Edomites were in order to understand Obadiah more fully. What do we know about Edom and the Edomites? Well, the first thing we want to indicate is, as we saw in verse 10 here of Obadiah, um, Obadiah refers here to the brother of Jacob, right? Done to your brother Jacob. Who is Jacob? Jacob and Esau, right? Who who are Jacob and Esau? Pardon me, twins of Isaac, correct? Uh, if you'll recall, their descendants, the Edomites, are descendants of Esau. Esau was the brother of Jacob. He was the firstborn son of um, Rebecca and Isaac. Uh, Isaac had married Rebecca, and Rebecca was barren, and and so Isaac. Um, cried out to God and prayed to him that God would um, give Rebekah children. And so God answers that prayer by providing her with twins. So she conceives two twins. Well, twins, one set of twins. Um, And in Genesis 25, 29, um, we read that Rebekah is experiencing this great turmoil within her womb. These babies are... There's turmoil within her womb. They're struggling within her. Now, I've, you know, we've had three children, and I've seen. We, we didn't have twins. We had one, and as is common, you can sometimes see the baby moving. Could you imagine two warring against one another within her womb? So Rebecca asks of God, inquires of God, what's going on here? And in Genesis 25:23, the Lord responds this way. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, And two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. So here God makes a declaration that there are two nations within her womb. And one will be stronger than the other. And the older will serve the younger. And this will all become relevant as we look at Obadiah. So who was born first? Esau, right? And who was a close second? Obviously Jacob, right? Hanging on to his heel. Um, I did pay attention in school. Um, But what's important is that Esau, being the firstborn, was to inherit the birthright. Being the firstborn, and by by tradition, he had the privilege of receiving the birthright. Now the birthright was basically upon the death of the patriarch of the family, the, the next firstborn son would receive a greater share of the inheritance and then would serve the role of the patriarch of the family. But what happened to that birthright? He sold it, right? For what? A bowl of soup. Esau was a hunter. He was a man of the field. He was out hunting one day, and he came back, and he was famished. Jacob, who was a little soft-fingered, was in the kitchen cooking some soup. And uh, because of his fleshly hunger, Esau was starving and was willing to sell... His birthright for a bowl of soup. A momentary fleshly desire overruled him, and as a result, he sold his birthright. And eventually, Esau comes along, I'm sorry, Jacob comes along, dresses up as Esau, wearing a hairy cloak, and going into his ailing father, Isaac, and eventually receives the blessing from Isaac. So he steals the blessing from um, Esau. And Jacob is then blessed and becomes uh, inherits the birthright. But Esau, in the manner in which he treated it, despises the birthright. Randy. his
2: mother was in that uh, deception as well. Absolutely, yeah. So his mother, who favored
0: Jacob, helped to orchestrate this this uh, theft, if you will, or this um, yeah this stealing of the birthright. But Esau, it says in Genesis 25 that in this way, Esau despised the birthright. Esau had, he was indifferent to the spiritual things that God was working. He had no care for um, the workings of God the, um, and this birthright that he was to inherit. And Esau despised his birthright. And then Jacob cheated him out of it. Well, Jacob cheated him out of it. Moments later, Esau shows back up and learns that he has lost his birthright. And as a result, he seeks to kill Jacob. But Rebekah tells Jacob to flee, and, and, and uh, Jacob is spared at that point. Now Jacob would later be renamed Israel, and Esau would later be renamed Edom. Esau means hairy. Edom means red, in reference to the red soup, but also maybe in reference to hair, hairy. He was a hairy red man. Um, But nonetheless, Jacob would become Israel and Esau would become Edom. And this rivalry continues on even to this day. It's it's a rivalry that has gone on and on and on in history. And this rivalry among the people of Israel and the people of the Edomites is is referenced a lot in the Old Testament. Um, There's one incident when Um, Israel uh, has escaped Egypt, they've been freed from slavery and they're traveling along up to the north and they need to get passage through the land of Edom but the king, the Edomites refused them passage and in fact began warring against them Uh, we also see this this, um, rivalry that continues on as evidenced um, later on in the New Testament one can make a, a maybe a, a distant reference to it. Um, if you'll recall, King Herod in the New Testament had uh, ordered a massacre of all the male children in, in an attempt to try to rid uh, the world of, of the Messiah who, who was born. And you can read about that in Matthew 2. But King Herod was of the line of the Edomites. Um, and so this ha- hatred and this, this enmity that existed among these brothers has perpetuated through time in history. And it again happened when the Edomites warred against Israel after the destruction of the temple. They were scattered. If you recall, in 586 B.C., we looked at this back in Ezekiel and in other studies, uh, the Edomites um, attacked Jerusalem, or the Israelites, as they were fleeing Jerusalem and were sent out into exile. They pillaged them, they, they warred against them. And we go back to the covenant now, and we recognize that God takes notice of that. Those who curse, his, those who dishonor his people will be cursed. And so we see God here responding in the book of Obadiah to this ongoing enmity that has existed between these two groups of nations. Are there any questions at this point about the background? Do you guys have any sibling rivalries, <laughs> Tim? Did you say this is Judah fleeing Jerusalem when the Babylonians are? Yes. Yeah. There's some reference to that, um, and it's uh, it, you know there's some debate as to when Obadiah was written. So, but most have landed at, at that point is after. Matt, you said that the that the rivalry is still going on today. Well, I'm yeah maybe I misspoke. Um, I wouldn't be able to prepare to answer how that's working its way out. So, are the Edomites still around in some form? No, I don't. Um, I think I'm going to reel that back a little bit, yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I'm not prepared to answer that one. So, yeah, I misspoke on that. Um, But during the time that we were dealing with here in the Old Testament, that rivalry continued on for for many, many generations. So, but we see that, um, I think I've jumped ahead on my notes here. So let's, let's, With that in context now, let's take a look at Obadiah. Turn with me to Obadiah. We should be there already. And in verses 1 through 9, we see that God is going to bring judgment on Edom. And he says this in verse 3 as to why. In verse 3, he says, The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling." say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Here we see that Edom has exalted themselves above Judah. They view their high dwelling place as a a way of looking down upon others. Their pride has lifted them up um, and they have um, felt in, in um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, indefensible or in, they they couldn't be defeated. What's the word? What would be a good word for that? Vulner- invulnerable, right? Um, they had exalted themselves above Israel, even viewing their high place as evidence of their superiority over Israel. Yet God was going to judge them and bring them down. Um, but why? So let's look at reasons for Edom's judgment in verses 10 through 14. Uh, would somebody be willing to read verse 12?
1: John? But do not gloat over the day of your brother and the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah and the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people.
0: Thank you. Here we see Edom as they witness uh, the fall of Jerusalem and the fall of the Israelites as they're in Judah. Um, We see Edom gloating over their destruction. The day of your brother and the day of his misfortune. There's a sense of, um, you know, this rivalry that has continued on would maybe warrant a sense of like, I can't wait for them to face justice and to face the just reward for their dishonoring of us. But God takes a different view. He he, um, he says, no, do not gloat over their destruction. Do not gloat over their misfortune. Do not rejoice over these people who are facing judgment, who are being disciplined for their sin. That is not um, my way of dealing with this, and I call you to account for the way that you've responded to your brother, Jacob. And so, God brings judgment on Edom because of their uh, prideful response to the discipline that the Lord was bringing to his people. Now, part of reading these books is to also search our own hearts, right? And to recognize that we have enemies in this world. There are people who wish our destruction, you know, in, in small and great ways. And we want justice. We want people to face to do justice for their sinful actions. Um, And yet, we need to be careful that we don't do so in a manner that is gloating and um, prideful, but to do so with a sense of fear and trembling. Because the Lord disciplines those whom he loves, and he will judge those who continue to rebel against him. And it's for God to do that. Um, There's all sorts of You know, we do have a a system of justice in this world that we can pursue when we've been wronged. But we should really take care not to gloat over the destruction and and even even just punishment that others experience as a result of their sin. You know, we we can be stirred up so much um, in our hatred towards those who are sinning against us that we wish that upon them. But here we see God judging a nation for boasting and, and gloating over the destruction or the discipline of another nation, and he's calling to them, them to account for it, and he's, he's going to be cursing them as a result. And so Edom is facing that sort of judgment, um, and we need to be careful even as we consider the you know, course of our world and the, and the things that we experience. But so in the first part of this book, then, we see uh, in verses 1 through 14 that there's a specific judgment brought to Edom for their gloating over the the discipline of Jerusalem. But then we see it kind of turns a little bit. We see not only is Edom going to be held to account, but look look with me at verse 15. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations... As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. This day of the Lord, we've talked about this. Tim mentioned it last week. Um, is, a, is a common theme among some of these prophetic books. Is that final day of judgment, that final day of restoration that will come. But he says the, the, the day of the Lord is near upon all nations who act in this way who gloat over the destruction of others. Um, no one will not be held account to account for their response and for their, um, for their gloating over the destruction of other nations. But we also see then in verse 17 um, that God will restore his people. In verses 17 through 21, we see God will restore his people. And we see here in verses 17, but in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them. And there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. And then we see a restoration of the kingdom of the Lord. In verse 19, those of Negeb shall possess Mount Esau, and those of Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria. The, in verse 20, we see the exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in the Seraphath shall possess the cities of Negev. Savior shall come up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. We see here that the Lord will bring ultimate restoration. He is a God of justice. He is a God of mercy. And he has held out a promise to his people, Israel, as we've seen in the covenants, that he will restore his people, and all people will be gathered around him, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. The kingdom shall be the Lord's. So I see this book, this this book is written to the Jews, right? It's, It's a prophecy given to the Jews. It's not necessarily a message given to the Edomites, although I'm sure the Edomites could have been made aware of it. But it serves as a book given to the Jews, and it serves really two purposes. It serves as a condemnation against all nations who dishonor God's people. Because by dishonoring God's people, they are dishonoring God himself. It is God who's the one who chose the people of Israel. And it is God who is doing something with this nation. And those who rail against it will, not be, um, will face the just consequences of their actions. God will protect his nation. And it serves as an encouragement to Israel that God does not turn a blind eye to this mockery. And God is faithful to his covenant promises to protect Israel from other nations. A father who, this is akin to a father who simultaneously disciplines his child for being disobedient, but also protects that child from outside uh, terrors. That's how God treats his nation. That's how God treats his chosen people. He brings discipline to them, but he also protects them. Um, and, and, and that's, in general, an overview of Obadiah. Do you have any questions? Maybe you have more questions now that I've taught on this. <laughs> Very difficult to try to squeeze three into one. So, <laughs> um, so whatever is not clear, whatever, if you're more lost than ever, let that be a motivation for personal study. So, um, but I hope, yeah, hope you can um, take from that a little bit on your own. Now we can be inclined to gloat over the misfortunes of those who rail against us. You know, I've said as the people uh, of the new covenant, we must be careful not to allow pride as God's chosen people, so to speak, to, n- to rise in our hearts as if we're some sort of special people. God will discipline us. But God brings judgment to nations who rebel against him. But we must be humble. We must be the most humblest of people. And yet as we turn to the book of Jonah, we see God addressing the very temptation that is evidenced in Jonah. Prophets sent to a treacherous and rebellious people. This idea that there's a little bit of pride going on here. And so let's turn to the book of Jonah. You should be there already. The book of Jonah. Now what's unique about Jonah is... These other books, these other minor prophets, they're prophecies. They're books of, thus says the Lord, he's proclaiming, he's using men to proclaim his word, to proclaim judgment on people. But what's different, this is not so much a book of prophecy as it is a book about a prophet. It's a story about a prophet. But it's also a story much more than about this particular prophet. And it's a story that has a lot of unexpected twists and turns. Now, who's familiar with the story of Jonah? Right? Can you see the felt um, boards of the whale and the fish or the cartoons that you've watched, you know? Um, What is often the main point of Jonah? When you think about Jonah, what do you think of first? The fish, fish, right? Or the whale that is often depicted as, um, you know, Jonah being swallowed up by fish. That's Kind of the main, you know, event in many of our minds. But as we look through this, you know, we hope we can find some of these interesting twists and turns that take place throughout this entire book uh, that serve a purpose. And so let's look at Jonah, and and let's take a summary of Jonah as as the following. Um, We have a general outline. We call it the first call of Jonah in chapter one. Then we have Jonah's first prayer in chapter two and we'll look at the second call of Jonah in in chapter 3. And in chapter 4, Jonah's second prayer, we'll put an epilogue at the end of that. So, here we see Jonah, um, and in chapter 1, we see the first call of Jonah. In chapter 1, we read, uh, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now, Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. It was a rather large city. Uh, Later on, we learn it was a three-day's journey in breadth. Um, And it was an increasingly sinful and corrupt nation, known for its cruelty. God had seen all their evil that that they were doing, and he was going to respond by overthrowing the city. And yet he was also providing an opportunity for the citizens to repent by warning them. And this is why he sends Jonah. So Jonah, who is of God's people, remember one of the one of the callings for the people of Israel was to represent God to the world. He's being raised up as a prophet would you not think he would be eager to take this message of, of, of pending doom and an opportunity to turn from their sinful ways and run to the city and proclaim this message? And that's where we end up with our first twist. What does he do? He runs away. He tries to run away in a very far, <laughs> a far distance. 2,500 miles he tries to go from from Israel over to Tarshish, which is across the Mediterranean Sea, all the way to to the west. 2,500 miles away is his attempt. He tries to leave, which is not the response you would expect, right? He tries to get away from the presence of the Lord. He has no interest in warning Nineveh. And at this point in the story, we don't know why. We'll learn later. But he has no interest in warning Nineveh. He instead wants to flee and run away. And so what does he do? He he hires a ship. He, he buys a fare to, to then get on a ship with some sailors who are transporting some cargo. And he hops on, and he goes into the belly of the, of the uh, ship and falls asleep. And then what happens? Yeah, we have a terrible, terrible storm that the Lord raises up. What does that first indicate? to the man who's trying to flee the Lord. The Lord is right there. He has not fled. I mean, he has not fled the presence of the Lord. The Lord is right there with him. And so the Lord causes this great storm uh, and great waves to the point where it's, it's endangering the ship. It's going to break up. It's endangering the sailors on board. It's endangering uh, their livelihood. And so these sailors are like, what's going on? They're They're fearful. Um, and so they cry out to their own gods, right? They, they each respond uh, in faith, so to speak, to their own gods, which don't exist, but they're crying out to them nonetheless, trying to figure out what's going on. And what, how do they respond? Well, they first start by casting all of their cargo over the ship because they're trying to save their ship. They're throwing their livelihood overboard. And what's Jonah doing at this time? He's asleep in the belly, right? And so what do they do? They go downstairs, they wake him up, and they say, pray to your God, tell us what's going on. You should be praying to him as well. The sailors, in an attempt to try to figure out what's going on, cast lots to figure out what has brought this upon us, and the lot falls to Jonah, and they figure out that something's going on with Jonah here. And so so they ask him, and, and Jonah tells the sailors that this is all owing to him, fleeing the Lord. And we see him say, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And, um, and this is all in verse, uh, in chapter one. Uh, and he says in verse nine here, and he said to them, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. What's ironic about that? Yeah, he's acting opposite he's just mouthing words right he's not actually acting upon what he has proclaimed to be a Hebrew a man who who fears the Lord who is in fear Jonah's asleep right it's the sailors who are fearful obviously they're fearful of living losing their lives at this point but the ironic twist is here Jonah proclaims to fear the Lord yet he's actually has run away from the Lord or has attempted to and so instead, now, now that Jonah has kind of admitted that this, is, this situation, this storm, this, uh, this um, danger has come upon them because of his actions, uh, what should be Jonah's response? Repentance, maybe? Oh, guys, I'm sorry. This is all because of me. I should turn back and do what is right and save you guys from the destruction that you're, we're obviously all facing. But what does he say instead? He says, oh, it's because of me. Throw me overboard. Right? In other words, I don't even, I still don't want to do what I'm called to do. I don't want to go back to Nineveh. Just throw me overboard. he He's, he's so foolish, he won't even jump over himself. Right? He won't even jump the boat and kill himself. He asked the sailors to do it. Great, you know. And so the sailors are like, what are we going to do? And it turns out, that he, rather than taking responsibility for his rebellion, Jonah instead puts it on the sailors to throw him overboard. And here's another twist. The sailors begin to truly fear God. In one ver- uh, chapter, in chapter 1, verse, verse 14, as they're about to throw him overboard, they say, Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. And lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. And so, they're about to throw him overboard. They preemptively seek God's forgiveness for this act. And, and or to not uh, lay his life on their shoulders, they pick him up and throw him overboard. And the sea is calm. And what happens? Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. This is the other twist. Jonah, who claimed to fear the Lord, didn't. And now we see these men who were fearing other gods turning to the Lord in an exceedingly great um, fear and reverence, and they offered sacrifices to the Lord. Randy?
2: Jonah, it struck me yeah, he was willing to die rather than obey the Lord
0: and go to Nineveh. Yeah, it's it's an incredible, um, yeah, testimony of, of his his prideful heart, um, his unwillingness to obey. To say he was a reluctant prophet is probably not enough, right? Um, he would he would have rather died than to face um, facing Nineveh. So the sailors repent. Uh, They truly begin to fear God. And then God appoints a fish. No, Jonah's out swimming around the ocean now, and he appoints a fish to swallow up um, Jonah. And then while he's in the belly, we see in chapter 2, Jonah's first prayer. And we won't read the whole thing, but I'll I'll read verses uh, uh, 2 and on. I called out to the Lord out of my distress... And he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. What's interesting about this prayer is it really doesn't hit at what's going on here. He doesn't really truly admit to what he has done. It's kind of like, I mean, think about it. He says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep. Why did he cast you into the deep, Jonah? You didn't do what he asked you to do. Like, woe is me. Whoops, I found myself in this situation, Lord. Uh, And he doesn't really take responsibility for why he's there in the first place. He just says the Lord cast him out there. And so this prayer lacks a little bit of the, the depth of confession and repentance uh, that one would see um, if one was truly repentant. But nonetheless, this is his prayer to the Lord. And the Lord, in verse 10, um, tells the fish to vomit him up. What, a, what an interesting use of word, right? He vomits him back as if there's a little bit of disgust with what's going on here. You know, it's not that just the Lord placed him uh, on land again, on dry land. No, he, asks the, he tells the fish to vomit him up, as if there's this great distaste for, for what's going on. But then we see the Lord, um, in chapter 3, giving him the call again. He says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. And so he tells Jonah to go ahead and now go to Nineveh and tell them um, what is to take place. And so Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's all he says. 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. He's one day's journey into the city. He, He proclaims this message. And what happens? the people repent. They begin to repent. So much so that even the king calls for all of his people to um, mourn and, and respond with um, by covering themselves with sackcloth and ashes and, and to wail and weep over their sins. And they do so that God, who knows, may God turn and relent from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And in verse 10, he says, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. The Ninevites hear the message, and they repent. As I've said, even the king calls for all the people to repent, and many do. And then God relents from the disaster that he was going to bring, going to bring to the city. And so, indeed, the city was overthrown, but not in the way that Jonah was hoping it would be, overthrown. In fact, the word overthrown that is referenced in the message that Jonah gives can also be translated overturned or to change or to transform. So in a twist of irony, where God was initially proclaiming judgment upon Nineveh and that that he would overthrow them, they in turn overthrow themselves in repentance and they turn to him. And so God did what Jonah had hoped in overthrowing them, but not in the way that Jonah had wanted. The people actually turn and repent. Now again, these are great enemies or, or people that Jonah despises. And now they've repented and turned from their sinful ways. And so would you not think that Jonah would be pleased That even despite his reluctance to go, that now Nineveh has turned from their evil ways. And that would be a wonderful thing, but he doesn't respond that way. How does he respond? Uh, Would somebody be willing to read chapter 4, verses 1 through 2?
1: but it greatly displeased Jonah and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning God. Thank
0: you. Now we learn a little bit more about why Jonah didn't wanna to go to Nineveh in the first place. He knew of the, you know, the, the evil people that the Ninevites were, but he also knew something of the character of God, that he is a God who forgives, who's merciful, who's abounding in steadfast love, and who is inclined to relent from disaster. And Jonah didn't want that to happen to the Ninevites. He instead wanted them destroyed. And this displeased him. There's a little bit of arrogance there, don't you think? There's a little bit of pride. He's a man chosen by God, set aside for his purposes, and his purpose is to proclaim the excellencies of the Lord. And now he sees the people who are turning from their sinful ways, over being overturned in a manner that Jonah did not like. And you would think he would rejoice, but he doesn't. He's in fact displeased. It greatly displeases him. Look how he, said, how he responds further. He says, Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me. I can't fathom this so much so that I just want to die. I don't want to be a part of this. Take me out. It is better for me to die than to live. What an interesting response. Have you ever experienced that level of hatred toward someone that even in the face of them, maybe receiving mercy, receiving grace, that you still are displeased because they haven't received what you think they deserve? I mean, we can all, I'm sure, look into our lives, into our relationships, and and see where we've been sinned against greatly. Now, there's no evidence that Jonah himself was sinned against specifically by the Ninevites. But they, they had certainly committed great evil, great sins. But imagine now seeing genuine repentance in someone else, genuine change, and you still holding on to some sense of bitterness and anger and a, and a, and a desire for justice. I want them to suffer as a result of the sins that they've committed. That is so not God's heart in this situation. God loves to extend mercy. He loves to extend grace. And it is only an a, um, indication of our own sinfulness that we don't share in that at times. And it's something we should repent of. Um, who are we? I mean, we are not a people who have deserved any of the mercy we've received. Sure, maybe our sins aren't as evil as, Ninev- as the Ninevites. We haven't been very cruel in in violent ways. But that all fails to recognize the standard by which we all fall short, which is the holiness of God. And so, again, we ought to be the most humblest of people. And we ought to be the most rejoicing of people when we see people turning from their sinful ways. Jonah, on the other hand, held on to bitterness and anger to the point where he couldn't face it and just wanted to die and so God confronts him on that. Um, he confronts him. Oh, and this is, I'm sorry, in chapter 4, I, I meant to say that that is Jonah's second prayer. He begins um, to kind of question God's motives. He begins to question God for what he's doing. And then in chapter, um, in chapter 4, verses uh, 5 and on, we see God kind of confronting Jonah for, for his anger. Um, he basically asks them, are are you really justified in your anger? And you can read about that a little bit more, about the plant that he causes to rise up. Um, And then God causes the plant to wither, and and he confronts Jonah on his, um, his hypocrisy, basically. Now, if you think about it, Jonah is kind of a symbol of Israel, right? Jonah was called to go to Nineveh, proclaim the message that they were to face judgment, but that they had opportunity to repent. This was Israel's call to represent God to the people. And so there's a sense in which Jonah kind of represents Israel in in their failure to carry out God's plan. Israel maybe has taken for granted their special calling as God's people. And so Jonah as Jonah takes for granted his role and responsibility. So instead of representing God to the people and serve as a blessing to all nations, Jonah, as well as Israel, as we know, failed to do so. But despite all of that, it does not stop God from carrying out his plans to bring the good news of his mercy to all nations. He continues to work. God's heart is to redeem a people for himself. And so that's, again, hopefully an overview of Jonah that is confusing enough to motivate you to, to study it on your own. Hopefully it's been helpful. Uh, but any questions at this point as we make our turn into the book of Micah? It's not
2: too much a question, but Jonah's one of my favorites. Because the lesson I took away from it, even though I'm a sinner and God's given us, you know, to go out and to preach the gospel, I've always taken away that no matter... How I present the gospel, or flub it, or make mistakes, God's message always goes forth, Mm -hmm. and it does what Mm -hmm. it needs to do. Absolutely. Even though I have faltered, or reluctantly done it, or was scared to do it. Mm -hmm. And that's, um, I've always loved that about Jonah, that no matter what I do as a sinner, as a mere mortal, God's message goes where it needs to go and saves who it needs to save so yeah it's a, a great encouragement for
0: yeah absolutely and that's a great encouragement to speak right to speak the message of truth in the manner in which god has equipped you and the manner in which uh, you know whatever level of knowledge you have of the scripture we have a basic enough knowledge of the gospel to be able to proclaim it uh, if we've obviously claimed that gospel for ourselves so yeah thank you that's that's a great encouragement anyone else any other questions or comments you know, so one of the things I just wanted to... Oh, we had a question.
2: No, no I just had a quick comment. Just um, In the New Testament, Jesus refers to Jonah. He's <laughs> one of only four prophets he refers to. And when he says um, that he is like Jonah, but he is better than Jonah. And it's in reference, I think, to how when Jonah goes out, doesn't go out to give this message of salvation, and he fails at that miserably, <coughs> of course. Jesus, that's what he's doing, is yeah,
0: yeah, Jesus... Obviously, does not fail <laughs> in proclaiming his message. Yeah. I think
2: um, Mark and.
0: Um, yeah, I, I thought I had it written down. Mark and Luke. Yeah. I, I had it well, even he references the story. So even there, I mean, Jesus himself refers to Jonah and his time in the belly of the whale or the fish, rather, um, in three days, right? Um, well, good. I, I just wanted to also just you know in general, some some. Bible study tips, right? One of the things that we want to do is encourage you to be digging into this, uh, into these books yourself. And even as I was looking at Jonah, you know, I thought, okay, here's some helpful tips even for your own personal Bible study. Things, some tools that you can employ while you're studying the Bible. And one of the things I started off with earlier was just understanding the context, right? It's good to have. The, the immediate picture of what's going on, but also a larger context of the history of what God is aiming to do and all of that. So so think about context, right? Immediate context and expanded context, the larger themes that are maybe operating here. But two other things maybe just to keep in mind even as you take some time studying the Bible. One very practical thing to do is to look for repeated words. There are a lot of repeated words in Jonah um, that that maybe can help you to understand what is the Lord seeking to communicate? You know, just even in my study, you, you can use computer programs to just show you what are some of the words that show up. But the word down shows up repeatedly. The word hurled shows up repeatedly. Uh, the word appointed and the word turned. So those, are, so those are things that as you read through Scripture, as you, as you, um, you know, study a book or whatever... Those are some of the things that you can jot down to see what they maybe reveal about what the Lord is communicating and how He's communicating those things and what relevance they play. So look for repeated words, and the other thing is the overall structure of the entire book that you're reading. It's very interesting that in in this case in Jonah, what we see is that chapters one and three are both both begin with the Lord, the word of the Lord coming to Jonah. And chapters 2 and 4 begin with Jonah responding to God. So if for nothing else, there's this, you know, obviously the chapter headings are, are man-made, but but there's a sense in which there's these movements in the book of Jonah that speak a little bit to what's, you know, that structure. If nothing else, you can begin to appreciate that these aren't just random words written on a page in a, in a, in a haphazard way, that there's design, there's structure that um, speaks to maybe the character of God or what he seeks to communicate. Um, but we see, again, it's just those are, those are a couple of tools that you can keep in your back pocket as you study the word of God on your own. You know, context, repeated words, um, just structure of sentences, structure of paragraphs, structure of the entire book. Uh, those can all help in giving you a greater appreciation for what is written. So that's just a little sidebar encouragement. Um, any questions before we turn to Micah?
1: Uh, man, I just want to point out that in chapter three, when Jonah did repent and went into Nineveh, which is a like the word says, it's exceedingly wicked. Like you could think of any you know, city in America that's wicked, you know. And he sent Jonah, and Jonah repented and went down there. And uh, I'm thinking, you know, what the heck am I going to say? But God says in verse in verse uh, two he says arise go to Nineveh, the great city and proclaim it's the it, in the, it, the proclamation which i'm going to tell you mm-hmm. so god gave no, jonah didn't even want to be there in the first place but god gave him the words to speak mm-hmm. and he spoke them in a couple verses later and nineveh ended up repenting but it just seemed like just picture yourself walking through san francisco downtown and just all of a sudden proclaiming on a street corner you know you're going to perish in forty days or or whatever, and the wrath of God is coming. So it's intimidating, but in the end, God always gives you what the words to speak. Yeah, and 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 look,
0: a very few words He spoke, right? That the Lord then used. So city's going to be, be overturned in 40 yeah. days. That was all that's all Yeah, saying. yeah, absolutely, and that that's a that's interesting, right? It's just I think it's five words in the Hebrew. Um, that he speaks and there's a response so yeah um, who knows I mean maybe he had a greater message we don't you know are these everything that God told Jonah to speak or is this all that Jonah ended up speaking and then there was a response to it Um, obviously we have recorded here these words but but yeah absolutely Um, Christy so
2: did Jonah really repent or did he just do what God told him to do and is it the same
0: thing? it's questionable right
2: (laughs) Because
0: I know, like, in my heart sometimes I know the right thing, but it doesn't mean I really want to do it, but I do it anyway. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's... <laughs> is that still repenting? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's different. I mean, is that repenting of your hard heart and unwillingness to speak, or you're like, the conflict of reluctantly obeying, or is that what you're dealing with? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, Jonah, at the very end, I mean, I could say, Hey, guys, you know... 40 days, it's going to be overthrown, and all of a sudden, everybody responds, and, because is still angry at the end of it, right? He, he's he's still showing a, a heart of distaste for this repentance that's happening, and, and it's kind of sad, but, so, the Lord used it, right? So, even if, I, and really, I mean, you know, the saying is, even our tears of repentance need to be washed in the blood of Christ, so even our proclamation of the word of God is probably, you know, yeah, I really don't want to share this gospel with somebody right now, but I will anyway, because I'm, to do so and sometimes that's just obedience you know that God calls stupid Randy and then Christina.
2: Yes there's there's a scripture that came to mind as you were talking but I can't remember where it's at but it talks about a man that had two sons and he gave them a task to do. One said no and did and then did it one said yes and did not do it. Mm-hmm. And the question was who was obedient? Mm-hmm. It was the one who said no. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. That's exactly what I was like Okay,
2: yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was yeah, say, yeah. So I just yeah, pointing <laughs> out that uh, Jonah
0: knew God. Mm. He knew
2: he was going to be merciful. And, like, That's true, yeah, yeah. Right? He knows God's mercy. So, therefore, he's running away because he knew God was going to cause him to repent. Yeah, yeah. Because all he had to do. And even, it, I mean, it doesn't say in what tone, but 40 days and you, yeah. you know, <laughs> I could... I can see myself saying, well, yeah, I'm going to give it to him, good, yeah, yeah. and then leave. Sure. So, though he was still reluctant, he did it in obedience because he knew God was going to be merciful, but yet, correctly, right, he was very hard-hearted. He yeah. still was
0: displeased. Or maybe you just didn't want to end up in another fish, right? <laughs> or some other horrific environment, you know, so. But, all right, well, any more thoughts? I mean, these are good reflections. Garrett?
1: Just the theme of God's mercy over and over again. Mm-hmm. At the time, I think that Nineveh was part of the captive empire, so the bad guys for the, the, the Jewish people. Mm-hmm. And just him being merciful towards the Gentiles, right? Yeah. Continues to be continues to be today. and. Yeah. He was the same to us, Yeah, right, in our yeah. state. And it's, and it's a great contrast because we, we think
0: about our own sin as probably not, you know, in our eyes as horrific as some of the sins committed by others. And so we can tend to begin to evaluate ourselves in that way. And, and oh, yeah, that's really terrible over there. They don't deserve mercy. But that is, again, as we point out, it's not God's heart, right? God is merciful, um, and he seeks to make that mercy known. All right, let's take a look at the book of Micah as our last book. And we have a short amount of time, which I anticipated happening. Um, And so let's look at Micah. And again, you should be there already. Turn one page over. uh, The book of Micah. And we see here... um, The word of the Lord came to Micah of Moresheth. Now, Moresheth is a a small city southwest of Jerusalem. And it's generally addressed to Judah, the southern kingdom. And generally, the outline of this book is a bit of a challenge. um, But it does take on more of this general form of judgment and hope. Judgment and hope. There's repeated um, claims of, uh, there's some words of judgment and then words of hope. And so the way I've broken this up, and I've borrowed this from some of the commentaries I've read, uh, but there's a first pronouncement of judgment and hope in, verses, in chapters 1 through 5, and then uh, there's a second pronouncement of judgment and hope in chapters 6 through 7. And what follows is that God, through Micah, brings judgment to the people, particularly the leaders, the priests, and the prophets of Israel for their utter corruption and selfishness. The key verse in this, and it's a verse you're probably familiar with, you may have sung it before, is in in Micah chapter 6. Would somebody be willing to read chapter 6, verses 6 through 8? Or is somebody willing to sing it? (laughs) Thank you. He has told you, O oh man, what is good. To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. I like the way one commentary put this. To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God is genuine humanness. Genuine humanness. This is what marks out a person who is acting and walking in a manner consistent with whom God made them to be. But do justice to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. It's not about the external offerings. You know, this is the question that is um, brought up here in verse 6. But this is what marks out a person who is truly acting in a human way, in the way that God has designed us. But what has happened, particularly among the leaders and powerful people, is that they have to use their positions, their skills, and their influence to serve and enrich themselves, to line their own pockets and to steal from their own people. The complete antithesis of what God requires. And this is what God is confronting in Micah. The prophet Micah is raised up to condemn and bring a legal case against the people of Israel. Israel. And so turn back to chapter 1, and we see here that God is coming. He is coming to deal with this injustice. Uh, Chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Hear, O peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple, For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth, and the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. Here God proclaims he is coming and in a powerful way. Uh, Mountains will melt under him. Valleys will split open. It's a great event of his coming. And why is he coming? In verse 5 we read this. All this for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. You know, back in, in um, Obadiah, God is addressing the Edomites, uh, Esau's lineage, right? But here we have him confronting his people, Israel, Jacob, for the sins of the house of Israel. And, and so what are some of these sins that, that the house of Jacob is committing, um, that God, that has arisen, uh, that has stirred up God to now come and deal with this? Among These are the leaders of the people of Israel, the prophets, the teachers. And look with me at chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, to get an idea of what God is confronting here. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in their power, it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Here we see the leaders of Israel laying in their beds at night, devising ways to steal land from their own people. You can read about this in 1 Kings chapter 21. Where we see uh, Naboth, um, who who owns a vineyard, and Ahab, it's a a vineyard that neighbors his land, and Ahab wants it. Uh, Naboth says no, and then Jezebel comes along and devises a scheme to rip this land out of his um, possession. And this is all in violation of God's commands. In Leviticus 25, 23, you can read about land not can't be sold in perpetuity. In Numbers 36 7, you can't transfer your inheritance to others that aren't within your own family line. And here are people devising schemes to, uh, to steal from their own people lands. Um, and, and in the interest of our waning time, what God continues to do in the book of Micah is to hold to account the leaders and priests and prophets who have violated their own people, who have violated, and he will bring justice for all of the injustice that is um, taking place. Imagine when the leaders of a, of a nation go awry. It impacts and affects the people that they're ruling over. Um, you know, we can, we can point to that even in our own world where governments are corrupt, and as a result of their corruption, and that the people under them suffer the consequences of that corruption. Unknowingly, or, or it makes it more difficult for them to live their lives as they as they aim to do. And God does not turn a blind eye to that. He does not turn a blind eye to that here. And yet He offers hope. Um, he offers hope that in the latter days, um, people will gather around Him, and He will rule with justice, and He will rule uh, with a, a, a sovereign hand. And you can read about the hope that is offered in chapter 4. And, um, and so just with that, let me come to a close, and I apologize for not spending more time on Micah. I had a lot of notes, I promise. <laughs> but if I were to apply an overarching theme to all three of these prophetic books, it would be this. Pride corrupts a people, but the Lord restores the humble and will bring justice. Pride corrupts the people, but the Lord restores the humble and will bring justice. There was pride in Obadiah when we saw Edom's prideful arrogance over his brother Jacob. We see the pride of Jonah uh, over Nineveh, um, willing rather to die than to bring them hope. We see pride in Israel's leaders in the book of Micah where they use their power and influence to serve themselves rather than the people whom they were tasked with um, shepherding and taking advantage of them to enrich themselves. And yet God will restore all things. He will bring justice to this world. He will rid this world of all evil. The question is, are we willing to wait for that? That's how Micah ends. In chapter 7 verse 7 and um, let this maybe be our closing prayer are you willing to wait even as Micah says here in chapter 7 verse 7 but as for me I will look to the Lord I will wait for the God of my salvation my God will hear me rejoice not over me O my enemy when I fall I shall rise when I sit in darkness the Lord will be we have a great hope. God will bring justice, uh, and he will restore this world in the manner that suits his purposes and will be a blessing to all of us. Any final questions or comments? Randy?
2: Well, making uh, make an addendum to my comment to Chris's questions earlier in comparing what her question was to the father of the two sons. I compared them, but it's important to contrast when you're using scripture to explain scripture, to be as complete as possible. What I didn't say came to me later was that, that one son did it of his own volition, the spirit working in him, where Jonah never came to that place. Mm-hmm. God twisted his arm to do what he had to do. Mm-hmm.
0: Good. that clarify, Christie? Christy? Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Any other comments or
1: questions? No, I think about um, uh, I think a mic, I think a micro five two, which is Mentioned in uh, early right. gospels, uh, but as for you, Bethlehem, of apatah too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. is going forth from long ago, from the days
0: of eternity. Mm-hmm. Amen. Good way to close. All right. Well, let me pray, and then we'll gather for our morning time. Dear God, we do thank you for this time, Lord, and obviously little over an hour does no justice to the depth of uh, what can be learned of you in Obadiah, Jonah, and Micah, Lord. And I trust and hope that this uh, brief and maybe jagged overview has motivated uh, your saints to pursue these uh, prophecies on their own, Lord. Um, I pray that you will continue to equip this church with a growing knowledge and love of your word, as well as a growing love for you, Lord, and trust in you that you are a God who says what he does, who does what he says he will do. We thank you that you are faithful to your covenant, that you are faithful to your promises, and may you uh, just continue to give us a steadfast hope in you, Lord. We thank you for this time and pray in your name. Amen.